We are back with another episode of the Black Box Podcast. I'm your host, Ahmed. And I'm your host, John. And this time, you know, we're back with another interview. We really like this setup. We think the episodes have been really good and we've been getting the best feedback we've ever gotten. Uh, It's a family friend of mine. Um, She is a small business owner. So we're just going to dive into the start of her business, what led to her doing what she does now, and then kind of shift a little bit to talk about how she you know, made moves for her business during COVID. Did she, you know, taper back, try to scale up, take advantage of certain situations and then, you know, cover a little bit of any investments that she does. We always like to tie it back into that. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. More entrepreneurship. Here we go. All righty. Hey, Janine. So thanks for coming on. You want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, your business? Yeah, sure. So thank you for having me on. Um, I love this kind of stuff. Uh, Any chance to talk about what I do, because it's pretty irrelevant to most of the world, it seems. Um, I always love, but uh, my name is Janine. I am a uh, dual licensed cosmetologist, lash stylist, um, esthetician, um, educator in my field for the last 15 plus years. Um, I was introduced to the cosmetology field in general from my mother, who is now my business partner. Um, and we have transitioned our business so many times over the last two decades, but especially over the last year and a half, two years. Um, but we, um, mainly focus on the beauty industry, which has been definitely a struggle for uh, the last two years while going through this pandemic scenario. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what else to say about that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so you're pretty much <laughs> you can go on and on. Um, I know you're a seasoned veteran in the field, right? The youngest person doing it for the longest time. <laughs> You started really early and then just stayed on that path. Yeah. So I particularly specialize in eyelash extensions, which 16 years ago when I started doing that, I was in cosmetology school, um, which I went to during high school. And Was that BOCES? I, yep. I went to BOCES. Um, I made the, not, I didn't make the decision myself, but somewhere throughout my freshman year of high school was transferred from one district to the next, which if anyone's been a teenager, they know that that is not great. Um, so I did not like the school I transferred to. And the Wait, where did you transfer to, to? I transferred from Carmel to Brewster. Which oh. We're literally, you know, neighboring town, yeah. which you would think was Rivals. like not a big deal. But as a, I don't know, as a teenage girl, it was probably one of the worst things, but it also at the time seemed bad, but in the long term was actually the best thing that could have ever happened because it pushed me to finish high school in two and a half years with my cosmetology license at 17, where I then like, I was already kind of running towards the, I'm going to work as a cosmetologist, whatever that means. And when I was in BOCES, eyelash extensions was very new. 
and I went to a beauty show. I bought a kit for $300 and I did everyone and anything that would sit still long enough for me to practice on. What kind um, of work were you doing? Was it just eyelashes or you're saying other things? Uh, at the time I did other things because eyelashes wasn't big. It wasn't that big yet. Exactly. So when I was in cosmetology school, my mom, who had been in the industry for 15 years already at the time, maybe longer, owned her own salon. And when I was 13, she opened that officially at a location. And I was made to work there. There was no option. It was you will go to school and you will get on the bus and come here and you'll run the desk and answer the phones because this is our business. And I was resistant at first. And then the first time I realized like, oh, I'm actually really good at this. And it actually, when we first opened, we had an employee who wasn't so great at showing up and we were the new business in town. So we were very busy and she would call in sick every Saturday when we had a book full of people. And at that time it was for manicures and pedicures, which my mom was a big nail technician. Um, So my, after two weekends straight of canceling people, my mom was like, I'm not canceling this day, get back there and do those pedicures. And I was like, I'm only 14. She's like, yeah, well, you've done a thousand pedicures, so go do it. She and just I threw did. you into the fire. Yeah. Oh, like straight <laughs> in the lion's den. And you know what? It was, That's when you learn the best. Exactly. I, so. I'm definitely somebody who does well under pressure. And although it was terrifying because I felt the need to prove myself because here I was 14 and here these people were grown adults, I worked a lot harder to make them like me that much more. And then I literally built a clientele out of it. And probably by my the end of my freshman year, going into my sophomore year, I was like, yeah, I don't like high school and I don't really like school, but I'm really good at this. And I think I can leverage that for an actual future. And my mom was kind of behind me because I didn't have a great experience in high school and neither did she. And she said, as long as I had a plan, she would go with whatever I went with. And that ended up being finishing school at BOCES. I graduated at 17 with my cosmetology license in New York State. Um, I then got my Connecticut cosmetology license because we bordered the two states. Um, Eyelash extensions was kind of big, but it wasn't big enough to build a whole career off of. So I actually opened a hair salon within her salon. And then probably four years into that. A separate business or under the same? The same business. At the time, it was like two separate corporations. Gotcha. But we were under the same roof. Um, Because she didn't know anything about hair. So she was like, look, if if you're confident at 17 to do that, again, I'm behind you. So I I took whatever money I had and did it. You already got past the point of having like any imposter syndrome or something because you were doing it so early. Also that's an occupation where people actually sit there and just judge the way your work looks. So there's even added stress on top of that. Exactly. And as long as I could prove to people, like, and this is kind of, it's changed so much. Like I can speak for my industry and it kind of is relative to almost all industries now that are visual. There was no social media when I started. So my form of advertising was, I know this person knows a lot of people. Word of mouth. Yeah. Yeah, they like me. So I would be like, hey, why don't you let me blow dry your hair for free? Or let me put a set of eyelashes on you. Just go tell your friends. All those people are still my clients 16 years later. And I tell that to when I would hire girls, you know, at, at points I had a lot of people working underneath me. 
and they would sit in their rooms and go, I'm not busy. And I'd be like, well, go do someone's, I'm giving you permission to waste material. If you feel like that's what it is, is a waste, go find somebody that will let you do their lashes and we'll talk about it and see people because it's like a billboard walking around because that's Mm -hmm. what I did. You know, I didn't have the ability to sit behind a chair and post a picture on Instagram. There was no Instagram and Facebook was not a professional marketing tool at the time. So I just like bloggers were just starting to be a real thing when I was getting those people to sit in my chair and let me do something to them. And again, they're still my clients today and they still get me business. It's like the oldest form of influencing with before there was actual influencing. I feel like that's the most effective. I was going to, I met unless you wanted to ask a question. I was going to ask, how do you, factor in like material costs how much do the lashes cost and stuff like that the so the markup for lashes or the overhead as much as you're willing to share of course yeah oh no i mean it's an industry that thankfully if you're doing it well enough like at the point that i'm at now where you're doing it and you're there's not much waste um it's really the skill you're paying for obviously the materials that I purchase myself. Paying for the experience, paying for your 15 years experience. Exactly. So there's a lot of people now, especially that do what I do. It's become a super popular industry. Um, And one of the best parts is that I'm kind of at the forefront of that, where when I did hair, I was at the back of it. There was people doing it decades before me. Um, I know the difference between materials. So I definitely purchase um, some of the most expensive materials for example, a bottle of glue or adhesive could cost as little as $20 from some companies. Um, I purchase an adhesive that for the same size bottle cost me close to $200. But where that factors in is the results, the maintaining. So somebody with that $20 bottle of glue will have to get their lashes done every two weeks, if not sooner, to have the same results that I have with somebody at five weeks. So- Being as busy as I am, I now have the ability to go, I can't see you at two weeks. When I was newer, I wanted to see my clients more frequently to fill in my calendar. Now I'm seeing more people less often so that $200 goes further, but it is still way more expensive than if I could buy that $20 bottle, which the reason it's $20 is it's not great. Um, It would make my overhead less, but I've made it to where... I can maintain my business and I'm making a good profit. Um, but I definitely order the most high quality materials. Yeah. And Cause you oh, want the best, you want to be known for the best. Exactly. And it's, and I've gotten that and it's been that way for, for, I'd say a solid decade. Now I spent about six years proving myself, um, working in different locations under different people's names and, and for at least, if not more a decade, I have had a solid reputation of that's the girl you go to. And people have walked over to people in stores and said, I know where you get your lashes done. And What's your nickname? Uh, well, my nickname <laughs> in the lash world was the Lash Ninja <laughs> because I was fast um, and people could barely tell I was there. Um, but yeah, that's funny. No, no, one, no one actually calls me that. But Is it self-proclaimed? Have, oh, I self-proclaimed it about eight years ago at a beauty show and I was being filmed for a you lot of You made it like things. a persona. So literally uh, yeah. it became my persona. So if you Google Lash Ninja, I, there are pictures of my face. That's funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, that's my reputation for the last, you know, at least decade is that I use the best products 
It lasts the longest. And one of the biggest um, things that were revealed during the pandemic to kind of bring it back around to that, um, a lot of products claim to be um, American made that weren't, or they would have a label that said um, made in or distributed in, and people never read the difference between made in and distributed in. And a lot of the products that I was purchasing were from Texas, Utah, places within the U.S. You didn't have issues getting your... I never had an issue getting a when product. When they couldn't get anything. Them. Exactly. And then the products that I was, I we, I went back and I kind of dove a little deeper and realized they said, man, they said distributed in the U.S., not manufactured in the U.S. So there was a big play on words that people just read it quickly and assumed yeah. And then it was kind of revealed at the end that, oh, this is actually not what we think. Yeah, I think they did that for a reason. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Shady companies. Uh, yeah. So it kind of proved that what I was, the research I had done over all these years and all the certificates I hold in over two, three dozen companies, it paid off all of that investment. Yeah, of course. Um, one question I have for you um, just a little background about me. I actually work in the cosmetics industry as a process engineer. And yeah, um, yeah I work at Estee Lauder in uh, Long Island. I wanted to ask you if there's any like relationship or uh, anything of the source that you've noticed with the cosmetics industry and your industry. Because um, I know that cosmetics specifically like lip products and stuff like that they took a pretty significant hit with covid um where did you experience like any like something similar to that we experienced the opposite so if you think of the aesthetic of the face and wearing a mask the only thing people are seeing is your eyes Mm -hmm. your eyebrows your forehead and your hair so and you know, not that anyone wants to do their hair themselves, but they can, you know, like I definitely do my hair myself, you know, just being too busy sometimes to go to a hair salon, but it actually intensified the necessity. Like the clients I have, and I'm so grateful for them have made me a ride or die person in their life. But three weeks, I mean, I was getting text message after text message when can you open when can you do my lashes i'll i'll pay double i'll come in the back i don't care and then when we were open and we were working the loyalty from my clients was beyond anything i had seen and i had been nervous that are people going to see this as less of a necessity based off of the financial state of the world and i have clients that range from you know the one percent that have a lot of money down to people that are, you know, saving a dollar a day to make sure they get their lashes done once a month. So I knew there was going to be people that weren't going to be able to afford this or that were going to lose their job. And I was greatly surprised that people made this even more of a necessity. And it made sense because no matter what happens moving forward, I found people to be more natural. They, uh, this is probably where lipstick really suffered. Not only are you covering mm-hmm. your mouth when you're wearing a mask, but People just decided to be more natural. So the transition I saw was, you know, the loyalty grew even further, but they changed the way they wanted to look. So the girls that had like the big fake lashes now were like, you know, I want them, but I want to look a little more natural, which we can customize that. So 
they definitely changed the way they wanted it to appear, but it was not becoming disposable like lipstick or even foundation. People don't feel the need to wear foundation. They'd rather go to the, you know, the cosmetic doctor and get some injections or get a Mm -hmm. laser done. They're almost, I, years ago, I came up with the term highly manufactured to be low maintenance. You go in, you get your hair done. You go in, you get your lashes done. You go in, you get your face lasered. And then for a month, you do nothing. You don't have to wear makeup. You don't have to do anything. It's doing all that work more sporadically so that on the day-to-day, you don't have to do as much. And COVID definitely pushed that more. So I feel like a company like Estee Lauder that's selling day-to-day makeup definitely had to have suffered where someone like myself that's doing more of a semi-permanent style, Mm -hmm. it it grew. I mean, my business changed and I downsized it and don't have as many employees, which I could have done the opposite, but based off of some other things, you know, other politics that came along with COVID, it was the best decision to do that. I could probably still take on more people and be as busy. Do you, uh, so like you just said, the customers and the demand wasn't really the restriction during COVID. Do you think there was any restriction that was, you know, due to the laws and, you know, emergency things they were putting out were, how long were you not able to even go into the, go into the shop and take customers? Well, I, we closed down officially on my 30th birthday. I was like, well, happy birthday to me. Um, well, at first it was a two week vacation. So you were probably exactly maybe I was also pregnant. I was very pregnant with a bait with an infant still. So I was pregnant. My second kid celebrating my 30th birthday, which I knew I'd be pregnant for. So I was like, yeah, 31, I'm going to really turn it up. And then I was like, (laughs) man, we're still doing this. (laughs) So, uh, 32, call me then and see what I've done. Um, but we, we were probably shut down for close to three months. Yeah. Close to three months. Um, we were the. It was very. We're such a niche, niche industry that they didn't have regulations for us. So, being from the hair salon industry myself, that's obviously a bigger industry. Um, holding as many licenses as I do in different states, I kind of got really good at navigating government websites and also using my resources of my friends that own salons and kept in touch. We kind of had like a a crowdsourcing going on per se, each day, week, anytime something new came out. Um, And I was kind of following what they said hair salons were supposed to do. And when all of that was coming out, surprisingly, I was doing everything the CDC wanted us to do post-COVID for the last decade. So I've always worn a mask while I worked because I took a tattoo course years ago. And the teacher mentioned something about respiratory droplets. And I was like, what's that? And she said, well, you're cutting open someone's skin when you're tattooing them. And every time you open your mouth, you're technically spitting on their face, whether you see it or not. And I thought that was the most disgusting thing I'd ever heard. And I said, well, people's eyeballs are basically one big open pore. Wouldn't it be smart for me to wear a mask because I'm sitting so close to them? So I started wearing a mask probably nine, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we, because there's, you know, people, there's touch points. We always kind of Clorox down our tables. I used medical grade disinfectants for my tools. I used autoclaves. So I already was going further than my industry required me to. But when COVID happened and the CDC came out with their guidelines, I was 
so proud of myself for having already put those things into play. Now, I can only speak for myself. I had employees that when I had to go and dismember my salon, basically, because we went in once we were told to close and we were like, all right, well, we're going to improve things because that's our nature. If I I can't sit still, what can we do that we wanted to do that we couldn't because we were open and so busy? So we went in and painted and cleaned and bought new things. And I realized my girls, even though I put regulations, you know, for them and protocols, they weren't following that as much, um, which is one of the positives to now having less employees. I had probably at 1.9 people doing eyelash extensions. And now it's two people doing eyelash extensions, myself being one of those people. Um, a lot easier to regulate than it was having nine people because if any, if I'm sure all of you have worked with people and know that people just don't follow the rules or they find a place where they can get away with it and they do for as long as they can. Yeah, of course, people are going to try to do whatever is like easiest. I think it's, there was like a saying where it's like humans try to um, like resist. You know what? I can't think of this saying. I'll think of it eventually. <laughs> though. It'll come to you. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, I don't know if you had another one, but I, w- I had something. Yeah, go ahead and go ahead. Um, yeah. So you were talking about you had the opportunity to either, you know, scale up or scale down and you chose to scale down covid kind of forced your hand on that decision and then you were you kind of realized a few of the other cons like was your plan prior to covid to keep ramping up because i know at that time prior to covid things were really busy there yeah i mean covid absolutely played a hand in the decision it almost made it for me um because i've been doing this for so long it's very personal for me i mean i spend more time at my shop than I do at home. Um, prior to having kids, I worked seven days a week, sometimes 18, 20 hours building my reputation. So it's super personal to me. And I would say a year prior to COVID, things got away from me in the sense where I always felt like I had some sort of, I don't want to use the word control, but I had some sort of intuition as to how people were feeling and how it was going. And at one point it felt like this isn't going so well. And people here are just going through the motions because they're busy. It's really hard to say, uh, I'm not liking it personally, but the money's really good. I think everyone's been guilty of keeping a job because mm-hmm. it financially appeased them, but it wasn't personally doing them right. So and you wanted COVID, something else. Yeah. And after having kids, and work not being my only baby anymore. Um, I had great people working with me. And then I had some people that were kind of like, you know, it's like someone threw, there was too many spoons in the soup. I think that's like a saying that says that may not be the exact saying. Too many hands in the pot. There you go. It's too many hands in the pot. There was too many people that I ran a business like we're all equals. I paid people what I thought I'd get out of bed for. I treated people how I would want to be treated. Um, I had only worked for one other person in my whole life, except for myself. So when I worked for that person, I took a lot of notes because I thought she did it right. Um, and I, 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 it, there was just certain things that maybe a normal business owner wouldn't have done. And it gave some people, uh, a false sense of, um, control over my business. And I definitely to avoid conflict, let them continue to think that way. 
And when COVID happened, it was the pause button that I could not put on myself because I couldn't say, wait, we're shutting down and I have to figure some stuff out because clients would literally be at the door like picketing. Um, So it was a forced reset button. And there were many times over the days that I remember saying to my mom, remember when it was just us? And it was like, you know, we didn't know any different. because The was vibe was us. different. It, it was yeah. a more family oriented instead of it, it started or what you seem like or yeah. what it seems like you're saying is that it became more like employees. Exactly. I don't, I never set out to be an employer. Um, when I started doing this, when I was younger, I wanted to be an actress and a model. And I realized I based all of that off of the bloopers reel from the movie Liar Liar. I realized <laughs> I didn't even really want to be that. I wanted to be I never wanted to be an employer. I just wanted to be really well known for whatever it is I was going to do. And at the time when I was younger, I wanted that to be being an actress or a model. And then I realized, oh, I actually don't need to be all that. I just want people to know me and know whatever it is I'm doing has a really good reputation behind it. And I've now established that. But, you know, here it slowly started. My sister joined us in the business. And then you know, someone else recommended somebody and it just happened to work out that they got really busy. And then I met another person and they got really busy and it just very organically grew to at a one point, like 11 to 13 employees. Um, and I kind of still had to, you know, oversee everything because it was my name kind of going on there, but, um, it wasn't what I sought to sought out to do. Um, so, you know, I was kind of learning as I went. Nobody gave me a, a playbook and there's definitely, there isn't one for our industry, especially since I have been doing it longer than most people. Um, so when COVID happened and I got that pause, I, I was like, I have to, I have to take this, you know, negative thing and turn it into something positive. There has to be a silver lining. And there were many days where I said to my mom, as we would talk in conference over, what should we do? And you know, how does this look coming back? Um, and I was like, you know, maybe we need to downsize, you know, we have all this space, we don't need it. And, you know, our landlord wasn't being so forgiving about things financially, um, which I completely understood, I didn't discredit him for, you know, many people looked at landlords as big, bad monsters during all this, but a lot of them still have mortgages to pay. So we paid our rents. Um, but when we came back, and employees didn't want to come back, because they were making $1,200 without having to leave their houses, um, it forced us to kind of change things. And it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me personally and professionally, I think. It's probably allowed things to slow down a little bit while also, you know, keeping the same type of success. Exactly. It I didn't... feel like we all learn to appreciate, you know, taking a, a moment, slowing down a bit. I know you, you're really busy and you stay on something at all times, but yeah. At least you and can focus just, more on family and the right things. Sorry. Exactly. Like on a typical week after having my children, I didn't work on Fridays. I stayed home to be with them. And when I had say, you know, nine employees, I would be on the phone on and off all day. I would take them to gymnastics and they'd be like, you know, mommy, mommy. And I'd be texting my receptionist or a client would text me and it wasn't a burden. And it didn't feel like a burden, but I didn't realize the anxiety that it was causing me you. to have. Exactly. Yeah. Until now, if I am off on a Friday, 
I, the day goes by and I have forgotten unless, you know, clients text me and people text me and that's fine. It's never a burden. I, I really like that open line of communication, but having less people to oversee and be responsible for, I actually get to detach for that 24 hours and only handle what needs to be handled. And if it's not an emergency, I handle the next day when I'm in, I would never have been able to do that. And and that's healthy. That, yeah. yeah it, it gave me a better, I'm really bad at work home life balance. I don't yeah. have much of that right now. I'm working on that. Um, but it, if, if COVID didn't occur and it didn't shift the business and I didn't take it as a silver lining, some people would take it as maybe a, a defeat, but I took it as whatever it is you believe in God, the universe, Santa Claus doesn't really matter. Whatever it was, was doing something for me to be able to move forward in the way I did now. Well, yeah, I feel like if you want to be a successful business owner or entrepreneur, you have to find something good out of those types of situations. Because if you don't, then things are, will just crumble. Yeah, that's, that was definitely the uh, the best, uh, I'd say, um, hmm, like the best reaction I've ever heard to COVID in terms of a business. So I'm happy to hear that for you. Yeah, thank you. And look, it doesn't take away from the fact that we lost tens of thousands of dollars each. I mean, I I've never calculated what we lost, and I refuse to go to. back and yeah. no, we didn't take a single loan. Um, we didn't apply for government funding or anything. We thankfully were doing well enough before things shut down that I said to my mom. If we fail, we fail alone. If we succeed, we succeed alone. And whatever it is, we did it. And that's it. And she agreed because we really didn't want to. It made things messier. I just thought of, oh my God, my poor accountant is like losing his mind on a normal tax season. When he hears we have like some sort of SBA loan or a PPP loan, he's going to like, he's going to fire us. So <laughs> we didn't get any of that stuff involved. And I'm, I don't discredit anybody that did. I purposely did it because we didn't need to do it. And I figured there's a lot of people that are not going to be necessities when we come back. And I feel like my clients have already let me know I don't need to worry. That's, yeah. I think that's the proper way to use benefits when, you know, obviously we're a lot of people that took advantage of the system, but if it came to a point where you needed it, then taking it, there would be nothing wrong with that. Exactly. I didn't see, there was no shame in it, but there was also at the time, no need. And thank God we pivoted in the right way that we, again, took the negative and turned it into a positive for us. Yeah. It sounds like you ended up figuring out the best way or one of the most optimal outcomes. Uh, Before we wrap up, I want to ask you one more thing. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to talk about any of your, you know, current investments or what kind of investing interests you or anything Ooh, along my, those lines? Well, I'm terrible at like investing in a like stocks and all that type of stuff, as I was saying before. Um, my big thing is real estate right now. Um, I don't That's understand. Yeah. And I was always told that my, my uncle was a builder for years. He owned a, a, um, a modular home building company for as long as I can remember. And um, unfortunately had a, a partner kind of, you know, mess things up for him. But my whole childhood, I watched him build houses and go to house sites. And I always found that super interesting. 
I used um, to love that when my dad did it too. Yeah, exactly. Your dad's, you know, he was in totally sales, in that yeah. world. Yeah, but I, I use him as literally a point of contact when I have questions. Yeah. Um, but my thing, I'm super interested in real estate. I have always enjoyed redoing things myself. My first condo, I bought it 24. Um, I renovated. It wasn't, you know, wasn't like terrible, but I renovated, upgraded, sold it, made some money. I leveraged that to buy a bigger, better condo. And now I just sold that, um, God, just a few, 16 days ago, (laughs) we put it on the market and I said, I'm going to ride this real estate wave. Um, We sold it and made a profit. Now my big interest is um, possibly building or buying or flipping something. And I'm very invested knowledge-wise into the, the, the trade issues right now the infrastructure stuff, because that plays a big part in if I build a home, what I'm going to do, because, you know, like the greenhouse emission stuff and, yep. you know, doing like geothermal and solar and stuff like that. If I build a home, um, alternative energy and yeah, exactly. An efficient household. Yep. An efficient household, because it's not only going to be a choice. Now it's a choice, you know, this infrastructure bill, one of the biggest parts of it is, you know, taking about 80% of where we get our energy from, which is gas, coal, you know, non-renewable mm-hmm. sources fuels, and getting yeah. rid of that. So things like geothermal are not only uh, a luxury right now, they're going to become a necessity at some point. So I'm trying to like, if I get the, the option to get ahead of that. So I've gotten really, I've dove deep into some, you know, the building information, supply issues, um, you know, the cost of building right now obviously is not great. I mean, if you talk to your dad, yeah. John, you know that. I the mean, prices I are to through m- the roof, yeah. Exactly. So that's where my investment stands because I don't understand, um, probably because of the nature of what I do for a living is very much so like, if I can build it, I can do it. But if I have to read about it, probably not going to go so well. Um, gotcha. So I feel like real estate investing to me because it's something tangible and sitting in front of me, um, is something that I've been super invested in lately and kind of getting all the knowledge I can about, you know, where things are lacking, where supplies are, you know, having an issue, the rates of things, um, which is again, yeah. why I am uprooting my entire family and putting more than 3000 square feet, three years and four people and into a storage container for, however long I need to until the market makes a transition in my, uh, in my favor. In your favor. Yeah, no, I mean, I think as long as you're trying to make your money work for you in some type of way, then you're on the right track, you know? Exactly. Does, uh, is it really only buying and flipping or maybe holding and then selling later? Or is the idea of, um, you know, renting, owning property and renting on the table too? Only due to when I bought this condo, I mean, now um, I bought it because it had the opportunity to be rented for more than what I would, it would cost me to own it a month. Um, so you knew if you wanted to at any point, you could just stop exactly. renting it. Yeah. Um, now the rental market is actually com- almost equally as competitive as the selling market. But the problem is the laws don't stand in favor of landlords. So that concerns me because you know, I'm a big people person, you know, I sit face to face with all the clients I deal with. Now, someone could totally dupe me and make me think that they're going to be a good tenant. And then, 
not pay their rent and the laws don't work in my favor. So yep. right now, the the smartest decision I saw um, with the least stress and the biggest return as quickly as possible was to sell my place. Um, I'm Definitely. kind of open to interpretation what it means in the future. I could totally see myself if lashes go obsolete, which I don't see happening, being like, I said, my next thing could be an HGTV show. I'll be the person with the hammer and the drill. You could you have the personality the for it. Exactly. I'm like, I, I went to the acting classes. I know how to stand in front of the camera and I have all my own power tools and I know how to use them. So I would do it all. I kind of like anything having to do with, with real estate. That's awesome. Yeah, no, yeah. That, that's neat. I just wanted to, you know, tie in investing a little bit. But uh, Ahmed, if you don't have any more questions, I think we can wrap it up. Uh, I'll, I'll ask one. Um, yeah. uh, something that I personally go through, like whenever I go to a, a barber or anything, um, I'm pretty particular with the specific barber that uh, cuts my hair. Um, do you Do you see that kind of trend in your own business? Like, are there some of your long-term clients? Yeah. Oh yeah. Like you mean, like if you have a barber, that's your barber. You want to see that guy every however many weeks, four weeks, and you don't want to veer from that guy. Yeah. Yeah. We, so this is, and this pertains to like the culture we're in now versus when I started doing this 16 years ago, I started trying to build something that wasn't yet mainstream, which was the sellout culture that we have now. I'm not selling a product to people. I'm selling a service. So it's not exactly sellout for us. I guess it's like book out. So the retention of clients was a huge thing. How do you build a client that not only comes to you once, but comes to you every month from here on out? And I, I thought of that for myself 16 years ago. Flash forward, we're in the, the era of like, you know, the Kylie Jenner lip kit goes live at 12 midnight and by 1201 it's sold out. In in the world of like barbers, nail salons, lash stylist service, you know, providers, our sellout version is retention. So for me, I'm booked out all of next year. Um, all of my clients from this year, they decide I want to see you every four weeks on Tuesday at this time. Book me for eternity. And that's what I do because I know if I have a hundred clients and I have now, you know, children and a household and stuff outside of here, I can't just work nonstop, which I was guilty of doing. Um, they, I book them and that's it. So yeah, that's something that's newer. I would say in the last like five to 10 years in our industry is I guess the sellout culture is that everybody has their particular person. You become almost like a celebrity in your own little world. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll take it. Like I said, I wanted to be famous for something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess you could say you are a ninja now. So that's that counts for something. <laughs> I am the ultimate lash ninja. <laughs> Self-proclaimed <laughs> lash ninja for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, thank you so much for coming on. Really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, I think this is a really good conversation. Gave people, you know, inside scoop on what it's like owning a small business yeah oh absolutely you need anything else let me know awesome do you want to plug any social media anything like that 
I don't even really, I got I don't really push my business too much on social media at this point. That's probably a, most people would cringe hearing that, but <laughs> that is, that is a perfect side effect of being too busy to actually even do that. But <laughs> they can go follow idea. my personal page and look at my kids, which are super entertaining. As you know, John. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I need to come by and see them soon. Oh my God. Yeah. You and so funny. He asks about you guys all the time. So cute. You guys can all reach us at our our social media, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, it's Black Box Podcast without the A, right, Ahmed? Yep. This no is usually in the part, but <laughs> no A in the black. No A in the black. Uh, but yeah, so we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.